0: Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. I'm Chris Nye, and today we have part four of our biblical narrative class on redemption. This is the point in the story where Jesus shows up. And the significance of it is unpacked here in this class. And it's unpacked by a different voice in the last three weeks. Of course, you've been, you know, if you've been tracking with us, you've been hearing me. Here we have Pastor Felicia Larson, who's on our staff as our Pastor of Spiritual Formation, an incredible gift to our community and does a great job expounding the meaning of the coming of Jesus Christ, both for those in that day, but also for us today as we look across God's great story of redemption. Uh, What does it mean for Jesus' coming? I want to let you know too, um, there is a final week to this class that we will not be posting because well, it wasn't recorded. And so apologies for that. Um, There's a lot of great teaching on the new creation, which is the final piece of the biblical story. Um, We'll do this class again. We'll record that, you know, fifth final installment of the biblical narrative and we'll post it. Uh, But until then, uh, enjoy this beautiful teaching from Felicia on the story, the piece of the story on redemption. Here it is.
1: you for all these um, people who are interested in learning more about you and about your word and the way that it um, that we can grow from it that it grows us up that it matures us and I pray that we continue to learn the story and to find our place in it I pray God that as we come to this space that it's not about trying to make ourselves necessarily smarter but that we would actually learn and fall in love with you more, that we would learn how much we are loved, and from that, give that love back to you through trying to understand your word and your scriptures and delve into them more, now that we have a better understanding of what all the pieces are and how they fit together. And so I just pray that um, you would give me wisdom um, to answer any questions, and I pray that this is a great interactive time tonight. In Jesus' name all right so hopefully over the last few weeks you have begun to see your place in the bible and in the story that jesus is telling through the bible that god has started something with all of us in mind when he created man which is what adam means when he created humankind that he had each of us in mind I don't know about you, but I come from an obviously dysfunctional family, (laughs) and so if you do too, maybe over the last few weeks, what you've realized is you're just part of the human family, because in some way we are all just a little off, because we are off from the way God created us to be. But in that, there is a tremendous amount of love that God has for us, and I, I love that that's why he tells this story and includes all these different types of people so that we can all see that there's nothing wrong with the way that we are other than we need a savior. That doesn't make us special, that makes us part of the human family. And so I just wanted to say that one of the things I love about coming into the New Testament piece is the Old Testament has done us a really big favor and it has shown us the need for a savior. There is a tremendous amount of brokenness and at this point, We want to understand the Old Testament has told this story to help us see that we're waiting for something. We're waiting for someone. We're waiting for that seed to come to crush the head of the serpent. We're waiting for that one to come to bring peace. We're waiting for the one to come to set everything right. And that is who we need humanity left to our own devices is going to make a mess of things and so when god instituted relationships there were rules parameters and guidelines things to keep us in relationship with god i loved the picture i was chatting with chris about this and i loved the picture that he had given you guys of just the boxes and how god kept drawing bigger boxes (laughs) to keep us close to him like here's the law here are all these different pieces to keep us close and yet we kept Just inching farther and farther away from God so in relationship with God there's grace there's mercy there's forgiveness and those may sound like kind of big fancy churchy words but all that really means is that God didn't expect us to keep our end of the bargain and of the the agreement that he set with us the covenant that he made with humankind and so he became exactly what we needed him to be which was who he already was but we got to know him as a forgiving God. We got to know him as gracious. We got to know him as merciful in the process of living. We got to see exactly who he was in a relationship, that he keeps his part of the agreement even when we are faithless. He is continuing to be faithful. And what I loved, I'm not sure if you guys even remember this quote because it's from very early on, but on page 14, I love this, it says, God did not turn his back on a world bent on destruction. He turned his face toward it in love. And I just think that's what his, he set out to do. This long road of redemption to restore the lost, his people, and the world, and his kingdom. And tonight we're going to get started to talk about the kingdom of God and what he came to set up. But before we do that, I just wanna talk a little bit about the redemption and restoration and the kingdom that's coming. So what I love about the drama of scripture is that it does really good work of character development before getting to the plot twist and introducing the superhero. I feel like when we share the gospel with people, we wanna jump to Jesus before we really make people realize the brokenness that is there. I think that if we lay out what is really the problem then i think people realize there's a need for a solution scripture paints for us a really bleak picture of humanity in the grips of a villain called sin and leaves us wondering how will the story resolve we're in the middle of the resolution all from the time of jesus's life until now is the middle of this resolution spoiler alert there was a resolution at the cross yes And there's still one to come, the setup of the kingdom. So Jesus set up a kingdom that we are essentially living in right now as his ambassadors to the world, and yet there's still one that will be set up ultimately when he comes and sets up the new heaven and new earth, which we'll talk about next week. (laughs) But we're in the in-between. So I want to talk about Israel's in-between, the intertestamental period, because these people were stuck in between what we would consider the Old Testament and the New Testament, we might think there's nothing going on. Well, when you come from a society like ours where things have to be moving, constantly changing, there's so much. Like, our phones are not good the next September when you buy one from Apple next year. There's a brand new one. But for God, the in-between, the waiting is the happening. God is always working on behalf of his people, especially when we're waiting on God's timetable. God says to us, "Be still and know that I am God." When you know that God is the one holding the future and the plan, you can be still, knowing that he's working on your behalf. That was true for Israel, and that's true for all of humanity. Jesus was what God was up to in the waiting. Scripture uses this phrase in the fullness of time that Jesus was sent into the world. There was a fullness of time. There were things that God was waiting to happen, things to fall into place that would be just the right time for Jesus to show up on the scene. There were things like Greek language that needed to happen so that there would be a way, a common language for everyone Now, not that the Greeks did everything right, but God used their ability to have a language for everyone to be able to spread the gospel. That was one thing he was waiting for. I also think, as weird as it sounds, he was also waiting for the Roman government to be who they were so that the people of Israel would be willing to accept freedom. But they were waiting for a different kind of freedom. Here's the thing. If we only have the New Testament with the life and ministry of Jesus and the establishment of the church, it can be taken completely out of context. You now know this, that there is a rich history that we would miss out on. There is a revelation of God keeping his promises that this isn't simply a really cool response where there's no need. Again, that's how sometimes people feel when we share the gospel with them because we start in the New Testament with Jesus and, oh, here's our hero. And they're like, well, that's great, but I I don't need that. Israel knew because God took a really long time to send their Savior that they needed something different. But the Old Testament by itself creates a need with the backdrop for Jesus. But without Jesus, humanity is stuck in an unending cycle of death, bound to an abusive and elusive enemies, both within and without. Within us, there were the enemies of sin and death, the continuousness of my own things that I do. I can't even live up to my own thoughts of what I think is good, my own ideas of righteousness. So I certainly can't live up to God's, so there's sin. And then that brings death, death of relationship, death with, even within myself of understanding and death in community if I don't believe that what I do is wrong then I'm going to visit that onto another person if I don't have my own moral compass I'm going to do things that are wrong to other people those are the enemies within and without the enemies are Satan and hell and hell isn't necessarily a place what it is is life apart from the pursuit of God And anywhere that you are not pursuing God and you don't know that a loving God is pursuing you, is hell. It's an awful place to be. And that is where we find Israel in this intertestamental period. Things are going on, they're doing life in a horrible way, living the way they want to, not according to God's laws. Even though they want peace, They're looking to governments for that. They're looking to people for that. And so God lets them continue to do that. He lets them wait, look to people, to kings, to governments. But God's kingdom was breaking in on this current order of things in in an attempt to set things right. When Jesus was coming, what he was going to bring was freedom from tyranny from human government. And there is a spiritual dominion that people were not tapped into yet to understand that there is something else behind the scenes. There is an invisible spiritual dominion that Jesus was coming to make right. While at the same time he was going to free people from the tyranny of human government, he was also coming to crush the head of our true enemy and releasing us from bondage to our greatest fear, all right, let's take a look at a couple of scriptures in the Old Testament that will help us understand what Israel was waiting for. I'm going to go to the end of Chronicles. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, you can. Second Chronicles, chapter 36, the very last chapter. 2 Chronicles is in the Old Testament, and if you know... That's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, if you get there. Then there's 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then Chronicles, so very last. And then if you get to the end of Chronicles, you'll see the book of Ezra. All right, okay, let me tell you this about Chronicles before I start. We have 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Actually, in the Hebrew scriptures, they were one scroll. They weren't even a book, they were a scroll. (laughs) And this talks about the life of David. If you want to know about all of the life of David, that's in First and Second Samuel. In Chronicles, it only talks about the good things that David did. And the reason that is is because what was the the chroniclers were setting up was, here's the kind of king you should be looking for. Here's the kind of king you should be waiting for. So that they would know what they would see when he showed up. So let's take a look at the end of Chronicles, and then I'm going to tell you about that first sheet you've got there about how the Bible set up. But let's just take a look at this. Verse 15, 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, which was the tabernacle. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men and spared neither young man nor young woman, old or aged. So that's King Nebuchadnezzar who God hands them over to. Then skip down to verse 19. They set fire to God's temple This is what the Babylonians did and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Verse 20, and he carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Okay, so there are a few things going on here. The first thing I want to point out is this is the way the Hebrew scriptures end. So if you pull out this book of the Old Testament and New Testament, I just want you to see the Hebrew classification ends with First and Second Chronicles. So every Hebrew Bible, this is the way that it's set up. This is how it would end. So when they're at the end of what they call their scriptures they're waiting for a king they've got Nebuchadnezzar right now that's who because they weren't listening to God's messengers they weren't heeding what he said God says okay well then here is your punishment and they end up with a very bad king who rules them harshly so when They are waiting for the next king to come. They're looking for one who's going to redeem them out of this pain of oppression, out of this pain of being under the rule of someone who treats them badly, who burned their place of worship so they can no longer worship. At least that's the way they saw it. They're lost. They're without a home. They're without their temple to worship. They're without their sacrificial system. And so their relationship with God seems severed. That's how they sit in this place of silence in the intertestamental period, waiting. If you flip over to our end of the Hebrew Scriptures, we end with Malachi. As it says here in the standard English classification, in Malachi what's going on is there is... In chapter 3, we can start there. Verse 1. God says, I will send my messenger. God still loves his people. He's sending messengers who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So whether you end with Chronicles, they're waiting for a king. Here, in Malachi, they're waiting for a messenger. Same person, because Jesus, we understand in the New Testament, was both king, priest, and prophet. What's important about the priestly part is in Malachi, the priests have run amok. If you read this whole book, it's only four chapters, It's kind of scary what the priests were doing. Imagine, for instance, if your pastors were divorcing their husbands and wives at whim, they weren't paying their tithe, they weren't caring for the poor and the widows, they were deciding what they would give and when they'd show up to work, and they just didn't care. That's what's happening here. So much so that God even says to them, to the priests, just close the door of the temple. Stop with the sacrifices. I don't want them. That's how bad it was. And so it's in this space that God, again, sends Israel into exile and says, Go wait. Wait for the deliverer, Moses. You still don't understand how much I love you. You're giving me bad sacrifices, blinded animals, your second best, your last best. You wouldn't even give this to a dog. Why would you put this on my altar? That is what's happening at the end of Malachi. So whether we end the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures with Chronicles or Malachi, what we notice is that the people of Israel still, in relationship with God, need a ton of grace, a lot of mercy, and a lot of forgiveness. So they sit. And in my Bible, it's the study Bible here, and they've just got some of the periods these, like, that span about 400 years. And what I find interesting is, so the Persian period goes this way. For about a hundred years after Nehemiah's time, the Persians controlled Judah. So here they're under control, but the Jews are allowed to carry on their religious observances, and they're not interfered with. So that's kind of what life was like under Persia. Then there's the Hellenistic period with Alexander the Great, the Ptolemies, the Sele- the I forget how to say this word—Seleucids of Syria. Under Alexander the Great the Jews are permitted to observe their laws and are even granted some exemptions from tribute during their Sabbath years. But comes along the Greek conquest, it prepares the way for translation of the Old Testament into the Greek, which is called the Septuagint. So that's kind of what happens there. Then we get into what you guys may have read this last week called the Hasmonean period. This was one of the most difficult times for the Jews. In this time, there was a forced Hellenism on them, so no re- real ability to live the way they're used to living, having their practices and their religious observances. They are now oppressed under cruel overlords, and there's the Maccabean Revolt. Now, you have to understand why these seemingly docile people, because they're in exile, would take it upon themselves to go up against their rulers and kill them. I think you may have read it, but they take a pig, the worst thing <laughs> in Jewish, um, the their cleanliness laws, and put it on to the altar that they would burn their sacrifices on. And at that point, the Jews were like, we've had enough. We're going to deal with this in our way. And then there's, of course, the Roman government that comes along. And we know what it's like when Jesus is born. Herod is there killing babies, trying to remove who he thinks is the next king who's been reported to come. He's afraid, and so he's like, the only way to keep my throne is to kill the one who everyone's singing his praises. This is the world that Jesus steps into, and the fullness of time. This is the time that God chose to send his son. And it's strange to me because you would think, why now? Well, let's take a look at what the Pharisees, the Essenes and the Sadducees and Zealots were doing. I would appreciate if I could get five volunteers to read because I want you to see what the Jews were being taught. In the synagogues that were created for Sabbath worship and prayer to teach people how to follow God, what were they being taught? What was Jesus stepping into with his teaching? We'll come back to that after we read these. So who wants to read about the Pharisees? I'm going to pick on somebody. Yes, go for it. Pharisees,
2: revolution. Purge all pagan thought and practices from Israel along with the Gentiles, Prominent teachers of the law and oral tradition in the synagogues. Complete separation from all things pagan and radical obedience to the Torah
1: law. So, revolution. Teachers of the law, they want to purge the pagan practices and they want radical obedience to the Torah. Doesn't sound so bad, but it's very different from what Jesus does. What about the Essenes? David. <laughs> I'm going to pick on those I know
2: arose during the Maccabean revolt during, uh, desiring to reverse Israel's
1: assimilation, assimilation. assimilation
2: no, you're good. and compromise with Hellenistic culture mm-hmm. they withdrew, f- withdrew from society to establish an alternate community at the Qum- Qumran. outside of Jerusalem believing their strict op- observance uh, to the Torah would
1: Mm-hmm.
2: God's
1: return to restore Yes, so these guys were part of that big revolt, right? This, these are people who they're like, we're going to pull away from society. We don't want anything to do with it. We're going to go set up our own little place. Does this sound familiar to how some Christians are <laughs> today? It's like, we want to pull out. We want to revolt. We don't want to do things the way our culture is doing it. But God called them to stay within the culture. And change it from the inside out. All right, the Sadducees and the priests. All right,
2: Uh, the official teachers of the law, members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, in addition to the Pharisees. Yeah, they were beneficiaries of Rome's rule because they collaborated with the Romans, so they had no desire for radical change.
1: Can you imagine this person at your in your family at your dinner table? (laughs) It's like. You're the reason that we're under this rule. Are you serious right now? <laughs> like you're gonna cooperate with these people? Why would you do that? But think about it. If political power is the way that you can get power for your family and you can get food, would you do it? Some people would. Some people do. That happens all over, even today. Then there's the zealots. Yeah, Nessie. This always makes me think of the the Garden of Gethsemane when somebody pulls out that, you know, (laughs) that knife and cuts off an ear. I'm like, probably a zealot. Um, And yet Jesus chose to have that person as part of his group. But all of these different ways of thinking, they called them parties. So like how we have the Republican Party, the Libertarian, we have, um, you know, all these different parties. These are what is impacting the common people. And the common people are those who lived within Israel. Some were scattered throughout, exiled, carried off to slaves um, as slaves of war. Their hope was in the redemption of God from their pagan oppressors. Okay, so this is the world that Jesus steps into when he says to these people, "Love your neighbor as yourself." But then he also goes so far as to say, "Love your enemy." That had to be a really hard pill to swallow. Love my What are you talking about, love my enemy? Do you know these people? And that is where the king comes in. So the key thought for tonight is God's desire to offer relationship to all those he created led to his decision to put on flesh and subject himself to the brokenness of this world. And I just want to emphasize that all, because if you go back to what the Pharisees and Essenes and Sadducees, what they were teaching was, the pagans are awful, get away from them. We don't want anything to do with them. Let's separate ourselves. And there's some language from the Old Testament, like around holiness and separation. Yes. Quick
2: question on, like, the Mm-hmm.
1: I think there were a few different kinds of people. So if we look back at Malachi, there's a group of people even in there that that is t- spoken of that as all of these horrible things are happening, there's a group of people who says, but we're going, to, we're going to live for God. So there are some people who are truly pursuing God, and there's a lot that are just kind of hanging out on the fringes and on the edges. And so I think, there, so, and usually those who are following hard after God are called the remnant, There are usually, there's always a remnant. There's always a small group of people who is still staying focused on who God is. And they're trying to live in front of their brothers and sisters the way that God would want them to live. But then there's others that are just hanging out, doing life, you know, being shepherds. Were they like, were they okay with being separated? No, I think they just made life work where it was, where they were. Yeah, I think it's kind of like anything. You know, if you're, if you know you have no options, you make where you are work. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. Yes? Is
2: there a difference between pagan and Gentile?
1: Not to the Jews, no. <laughs> they were pretty much the same. Yeah, because if they, if you weren't Jewish, you were a pagan and unless you were part of the Jewish household and you accepted the Jewish lifestyle which is a really good question because this whole idea of separation from pagans was never God's idea you if you look in even Exodus you'll see that um I actually had that scripture set out to to share with you guys cuz I thought it was really interesting or well, actually is it Exodus there's also one in Numbers. Yeah. So in Exodus it says, do not mistreat the alien, which is anyone who's not Jewish, or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. So that's um, God's basis for, this is how you treat people who are outside of the children of Israel. But then in Numbers, it clearly says, everyone who is native born must do these things. And he lists out some things that they're supposed to do. And then he says, you and the alien shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and to the alien living among you. So anyone who chose to live alongside the Israelites or within their borders, they would be treated exactly the same. They would have the same rights and, and access to the same benefits that the Jews had. So, But they had to choose that. And they I don't know that they necessarily had to be Circumcised, but that could have been part of it. But I know that they still chose like the dietary restrictions and those sorts of things, and then they would be part of all the benefits that the Jews had. So that wasn't new. It seems like that in Scripture, like in the New Testament, oh, well, the Jews and the Gentiles come together. God always had that. He, that was always what the Jews were supposed to do. They just decided to be separate because, well, the pagans, every time we hang out with them, we get in trouble. It's like, Well, yeah, because you're supposed to stay in your lane (laughs) where God called you to be. And they chose to not do that. They chose to, you know, as like scripture says, bad company corrupts good character. Well, they decided to not let their goodness filter out into the pagan community. They decided to be corrupted by it. And so that was what happened. But it was always God's plan to have both Jews and Gentiles side by side. He came for everyone, but he chose out the Jews as a special group to show his love to so that other people would see it and want that. Yeah. So speaking of which, the coming of the king, our first fill-in here, the coming of the king meant freedom from sickness and pain. In Mark 2, 17, we get to see that Jesus came to heal. That was what he wanted to do. That's what Jesus that was one of the, the markers of the messiah was that he would heal so it says here in mark 2 17 on hearing this jesus said to them it is not the, is it not the healthy who need a doctor no but the sick i have come to call to not to call the righteous but sinners so here is these pharisees the teachers of the law saying why do you hang out with sinners Jesus says well I came for the sick so if you're righteous and your righteousness can save you good have fun with that but he came for those who were not righteous and to bring righteousness to them so that's the first thing the coming of the king meant freedom from sickness and pain if you look at also in the Old Testament Isaiah 61 it's also reflected in Luke where Jesus takes up the scroll and reads it in the temple. Um, and in Luke 4, 21, he says that he is the fulfillment of that Isaiah 61 passage, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and releasing the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, when Jesus shows up, healing happens, whether it's for the blind, for those who who are in need, those who are oppressed. That's what he came to do. The coming of the king, secondly, meant power revealed for how to live this life. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I always thought that because Jesus was God in the flesh... That's how he lived a perfect life. Spoiler alert, that's not how he lived a perfect life. (laughs) I wish that was true because then that would make him special and then I don't actually have to do life the way he did it. I don't have to be perfect. Now, truth is, I'm a sinner, yes, but God calls me a saint, which means that he sees me in the perfectness of Jesus. But how did Jesus do it? Let's look at Mark 14, 23. Jesus does it like this. Mark 14, 23. And I just want you to look at the heading in your Bible if you have it. Mine says, Jesus walks on the water. That's the heading. So that happens after what I'm about to read. But listen to what Jesus did. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. The power of God came to Jesus through prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit. When you look into scripture, you'll see Jesus praying, going off by himself a lot, and depending on the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit hovered over him like a dove And you hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then that same spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. Not because God tempts us, but because with the Holy Spirit, you can survive temptation. That's the point of the story. (laughs) And so the power revealed on how to live this life is through the power of prayer And the power of the Holy Spirit, who, once Jesus leaves, would be inside us. That is what his life showed. That's what the coming of the king meant. Next, the coming of the king meant inclusion. So I already read those verses to you from Exodus and Numbers. But I want you to remember this that while a lot of the Israelite teachers of the law and their leaders were trying to get away from the pagans, so they were then teaching their common people that, those who came to the synagogue, what they needed to understand was the coming of the king meant inclusion, which means it's gonna get uncomfortable. You're gonna have to hang out with Samaritans, which are the half-breeds in the Jewish culture, They're half Jews and half Babylonians. So, oh my goodness, you intermix with those people. What are you doing? It was going to get uncomfortable, but Jesus wanted people to love each other and love is hard. It is not squishy and easy. It's hard. And in doing that, that's how we grow. That's how that's the sanctification process is through loving others who are not necessarily like us. But everyone is included. The coming of the king meant that there was no Jew or Greek, meaning that God saw them the same. Or they say Jew or Gentile. Everyone was the same. That whatever the problems that men and women had with each other had to be squashed. You had to figure out how to get along. And people in different caste systems, different class places in society had to figure out how to get along. That's what the coming of the king meant. No one was excluded, everyone was welcome, and we have to figure out how to get along with each other. Next, the coming of the king meant co-mission. Now we talk about the great commission, but this is a co-mission with us and Jesus. I love that the book talked about this last week how when scripture in the new testament says you are the light of the world that that was something that was said in isaiah and i'm not sure if you guys caught that but i just want to read those scriptures really quickly because i had not seen those before and if i mean i've read isaiah before but i just didn't hone in on it the same way that i did when it was called out here but isaiah 42 verse 6 says I the Lord have called you in righteousness I will take hold of your hand I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles so again realizing that that was not new God already had a plan for the Gentiles to be part of his family and that was through the light that the Jews were supposed to bring Then flipping right over to Isaiah 49, verse 6, again, says, He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the coming of the king meant co-mission. His Jewish followers were going to have to be willing to be the light. Jesus said that he was the light, but as he left and left the mission to his people, they were then to be the light. And this is something, as Jews, they should have already known because Isaiah was a major prophet, which they read consistently. And so to be the light to the Jews, to the Gentiles, was a very important part of being Jewish. They partnered with Jesus, is what Jesus is saying as the king comes, you are to partner with me in, on mission to the Gentiles, bringing them into the family of God. Okay, next. The coming of the king meant sinners were welcomed to the table. So we got Gentiles, and they're one thing. But sinners, really? Because there are some Gentiles who did good things. I mean, it's kind of like today, right? Like, not everyone's a Christian. I know really good people of other faith traditions, and some people with zero faith tradition. But then you put on top of that people who murder, who get, you know, in this day, get divorced, people who have sacrificed children i mean there, there are just all kinds of things And you're like and oh, we're supposed to go to these people with the message of salvation yes because jesus came for everyone so that meant sinners were welcomed at the table now the pharisees and sadducees got their noses all out of joint even when jesus just sat with people who drank i don't know about you but i would not be okay with Pharisees and Sadducees (laughs) if they were not letting me at the table but this is what Jesus was showing was that he will sit with tax collectors sinners prostitutes people who lived life very differently than those who were thinking they were keeping the law but when they were separating themselves from people who were hurting and who needed to know the love and mercy of God they were not living the way God would have called them to live now we get to Jesus's followers and the coming of the king for them meant adjusting their expectations so when they were called by Jesus to follow him they had to gain a better understanding of who he was so adjusting their expectations they were looking for a military leader they were looking for someone to help stop the oppression of the romans but that's not what jesus came for jesus was willing to live under the law when the pharisees said well do we pay taxes to caesar he's like bring me a fish finds in the fish a coin whose face is on the coin caesar Then give to caesar what belongs to caesar they're like what do you mean we have to live within the system we have to work within the system that's not what they were looking for adjusting expectations about which evil he came to rid the world of looking back through your reading this week it was clear that they thought the romans any gentiles That was the evil that they needed to be rid of. If we could just get rid of these evil people, we would no longer be oppressed. We could live a very happy life and go back to doing things the way we wanted to. That's not what Jesus came for. There was a bigger enemy that they had that they weren't even realizing. That the enemy behind all of it that had a great time causing wars and watching all of God's image bearers die was Satan. They could not see that. And so much so that when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said to them, Satan is your father. You're doing everything the way he would do it. You're separating people. You're not giving the gospel. You're not giving the good news of who God is to everyone. You're keeping it to yourself. And that's not the way God is. He tells them, you're, you're a liar, just like your father. You're saying things that are not right. You may look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. This is how Jesus talked to the religious leaders of his day. Because they weren't being merciful. They weren't being forgiving. They weren't showing how God was to the people right beside them. They thought Jesus was coming to get rid of those people. And they had to adjust their expectations. Both those who were following Jesus and those who were teaching people what they thought were God's laws. And lastly, they had to adjust their expectations about the displays of power. This had to be really hard. I want to take a look at Matthew 16 with you, because I feel like this helps us to understand what they were looking for. (coughs) So humility surprises those expecting a military conquest. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. They're expecting military conquest. Listen to what Jesus is saying. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that, they, that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So, remember, adjusting expectations. Who is Jesus? He's that suffering servant. Who is Jesus? He's that lamb that came to take away the sin of the world. He is coming to radically alter the way things Are seen. We are used to fighting as human beings with weapons. Jesus' weapon was his humility, his willingness to be vulnerable even unto death. Meekness inherits the earth. Matthew 28, verse 18, says, All power on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus, this is after Jesus is crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And he says, Now I have all power. He chose to be under control. When he was taken, he could have. He said on the cross, "I could have called down a legion of angels." He chose meekness instead for all of us, so that we could have salvation. That's not what they were expecting. If we look at First Corinthians as well, there's another <coughs> First Corinthians 15, verse 24 says. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies, his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So again, in his meekness, when he rose from the grave, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, everything is now put under Jesus' power. But if he would, if he would have he would have would have done the disciples wanted him to, or if he would have accepted the temptation that Satan gave him in the beginning, that you could have everything, I'll give you it all if you just bow down and worship me. If he would have done that, he could have had it the easy way, not gone through death. But we would not we would not be saved because he would have taken the easy way out. This was the way Jesus had to do to go through this process. But in the end, that meekness. He inherited the earth. He got all the power. And submission gains favor. um, Skip over to Philippians after uh, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter two. You see here, verse eight. We'll just read that. But if you have time, go back and read the rest because it's really good. I don't like to take things out of context, but I want to keep going. So it says here and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He submitted his will to God's will. And in that obedience, he gained favor. Ultimately, he was able to bring life through his resurrection. If he would have been able to find another way, you know Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times, if there's any way you could take this from me, if there's another way we could do this. God's like, oh well, this is the way. And because of his obedience, his submission to God's will, we all are saved. So the coming of the king meant... From the top freedom power revealed for how we are to live inclusion of all we are now part of the co-mission that invites sinners to the table we have to we also have to adjust our expectations <laughs> about who Jesus is because I want Jesus to be really sweet and kind and Jesus was pretty direct I want Jesus to rid my world of a few evils But he teaches me to forgive and to love my enemies. I would love for God to display some power on my behalf at times. (laughs) But instead, he chooses humility and meekness and submission. And he invites me to do the same, which is the last fill in here. The coming of the king meant a renewed life was possible. For humanity, relationships changed my relationship with God changes. In Romans 2, 4, it says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I am so glad for that because he is so powerful. He could not choose kindness. He could choose power. But he chooses kindness. With ourselves, Romans twelve three tells us to have a sober view of ourselves, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But sober means I'm an image bearer of God that is who I am I already have everything in me with Jesus Christ that I need to live in this world to conquer the things that are negative about this world whether it's my beliefs about myself or other people having a sober view of myself helps me to love other people well that's a renewed life with others Jesus has said that we are to love one another. And if we say that we love God, but we can't love those who we see, we're lying. We don't really love God. I'm going to tell you, I wish that wasn't in there sometimes. (laughs) Because some people are really hard to love. And I'm like, really, God? Fine. Um, But, again, renewed life means that it's kind of like the... Right. God puts a little thing in there just to stir up our life, to keep us working on how to get better at who he's creating us to be. Sanctification is what that is. We love one another. That doesn't mean we get a choice to. That means we get to. We get to love one another because Jesus loved us. And we love our enemies. Scripture tells us to pray for those who are our enemies, those who despitefully use us. Scripture also says that we are to let vengeance be in the hands of God, not our own. Again, another scripture I wish was not <laughs> in there, but it is. And so we work to live by it. That is the conviction that comes by the Holy Spirit. When we don't do things the way God calls us to, there's that constant conviction. There are people that I would rather walk around the other way. But God says, no. If that person needs something, I'm still to serve them. If that person needs um, a hand to hold, a shoulder to cry on, even if I don't like them, Jesus would do it. So I have to do it. R- renewed life, different kinds of relationships. Because back to the self relationship. If I understand who I am in Christ, I can do this. I cannot do this on my own. So please understand no matter how long you walk with Christ, it's not about the time, it's the maturity level, and it is about tapping into the power of the Spirit. That's the way Jesus did it. He didn't do it just because He was God. He did it because of the Spirit that He depended on, that was inside Him, that indwelt Him. That's how we do this only by the power of the Spirit. And lastly, there's a renewed life and connection with creation. Romans 1 tells us that creation is groaning. Creation cannot wait for the day of redemption. Creation wants this to be over so that it can flourish and be as beautiful as it is intended to be. So in that, we who are believers are to do as much as we can to help creation to be renewed while we are still here, while Jesus is waiting to return. All relationships must change. There is a dividing wall in between us and them, whoever the them is in your life. Scripture says in this Ephesians 2 passage that those who are in Christ, that dividing wall is smashed. That's what Scripture says. It is obliterated because of the cross of Christ. Because of the blood of Christ, because of his resurrection, it's gone. It does not exist. So if there's a wall erected, tear it down. Do not let it stay there. Whoever the us and them is in your life, if it's a family member, if it's a co-worker, a roommate, an old friend, an old boyfriend, an old girlfriend, whoever it is, whatever it is, tear it down. Because Jesus already has. And especially if you're believers, it should not exist there between you. But that scripture in Ephesians 2 is written about Jews and Gentiles. It says that that dividing wall has been torn down. So we are to step past that in the love of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Pray hard and then go live how God calls you to live. The coming of the King means we have a renewed life and the possibility to live different. all I got. I will take questions. <laughs> Thoughts, questions, pushback, please. Yes. Pastor. <laughs> yes,
0: Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think that some of the walls that were up you know, in the time that Jesus was living like in some ways I think that they were worse then than they are now, but then in other ways I think that they're worse now than they were then. And then, like, thinking about this as a story Mm -hmm. of, like, God redeeming the world, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I think, like, are we better? (laughs) You know? Like, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, like the walls that are up today, Mm -hmm. you know, in America, Mm -hmm. and the walls that were up in in Jerusalem back Mm -hmm. then, racially or gender Mm -hmm. or... Politics yeah. or religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my question is like, how do you see us in the trajectory of God's redemption and story?
1: I think we are just as good at self deception,
0: mm.
1: <laughs> at thinking that it's different. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I mean, you look at the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law, they literally thought they were doing the right thing yeah. by separating themselves yeah. from the Gentiles. I mean, they and they could point to scripture as to why. Mm -hmm. Well, we have these cleanliness laws. We're supposed to do things this way. They don't do it that way, so therefore I shouldn't be with them. They eat the wrong things, therefore I won't sit at their table. They serve the wrong gods, therefore I won't interact with them. They were just as good at (laughs) self-deception as I feel like people today are. Mm -hmm. Um, I think probably one of the things that's incrementally better is how women are treated, but not a lot. <laughs> um, I think that's, incre- I mean, there's, there's certainly a certain amount of power that we have, but I also think that that's because of Jesus. Jesus treated women very well. And so I think anyone who looks at his example can see the way that he treated them with kindness and you know, with equality. I think that's so. If anyone, if for any reason women are being treated better, it's because of his example. Because men didn't come up with that by themselves, and, you know he he did. And I feel like so. I feel like Christian men have that example; they can certainly be that way. And then other people who see him as a good prophet or a teacher and base their life against his, I think, would um, racially certainly not in our current current climate. No. Um, But I think even around the world, I feel like I had a good friend of mine who, he is Indian, his wife is French, and his son was born pretty fair-skinned, and I kid you not, he clearly said over his kid in the room where he was born, well, at least he'll have more choices. Mm -hmm. He was only born three years ago. Mm -hmm. It blows my mind. But that's still a thought to him because in India, people with darker skin are treated poorly. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's about probably a little lighter than me, not much. But yeah, and so I think that was his first thought. I'm like, you have a beautiful son. Mm-hmm. Why is that your first thought? Mm-hmm. And he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so I think, no, I don't think we're yeah. much better. Mm-hmm. I think the human story just keeps getting repeated. And I think certain pockets and people get better but I think overall as a people <laughs> no
0: and it makes me think too of like your your thing about the remnant mm. mm-hmm. of like you know maybe that's our you know our call is not to have like millions of people be better necessarily mm-hmm. but to know that God hopefully maybe has like a remnant in his mm-hmm. church because mm-hmm. the church is just as messy as Jerusalem yeah. and as the Israelites oh gosh, but right you know, if awakening is a part of the remnant, you mm-hmm. know, it's like yeah. that's kind of the hope moving forward mm-hmm. despite the craziness.
1: Yeah, well, and I do feel like, I mean, I do feel like this generation does a really good job of loving people of all backgrounds. Mm. Um, I remember at my daughter's 13th birthday, I, was, I looked around the table and it was like the United Nations. There was no one that looked the same. There was no one who had like a similar last name. There was, I mean, like from everywhere. It was insane to me. I was like, oh my gosh. And so I feel like if there's anybody who's doing it well, it's you guys. (laughs) I mean, I I do, I really mean that. I feel like there is a, it's not even a tolerance. It is truly an acceptance and a desire to, to know more and to seek, to understand. I feel like this generation does that well. And I've watched it because I was a teacher for years in school, and I watched kids as they grew up, and then now they're, you know, they are in college and things like that. But kind to each other, welcoming, defending each other, never letting someone put someone down for a head wrap that they potentially wore, or you know, the food that they ate that was different, or the clothes that they made. I mean, it was just like, no, that's my friend, and nobody was afraid to say that. That is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this generation is doing pretty good with it, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, good question. Other thoughts? I think um, what
3: Chris brought up a couple weeks ago, is stuck in my head where he, I don't know if he reviewed his notes, but mm-hmm. he said it's, it's not a... a it's not good versus
1: evil. It's good versus rebellion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I've thought of that a lot when I look mm-hmm. at people, mm-hmm.
3: including myself, and realizing <clears throat> I'm part of, of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. I'm not good person versus evil person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's goodness
1: of God again against the rebellion of man, and we're all in that rebellion, mm-hmm. and how the story with Jesus coming, you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes the story that I'm rereading kind of unfold in a different way. It's helped me to see a
3: little bit more what God is trying to do yeah, through creation, through time, through scripture, through
1: Jesus. Well, and it certainly changes the us versus them language Mm -hmm. that I hear a lot. I mean, I I heard it a lot growing up in the church. You know, it's just like, well, you know, we... No, 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 no. We are just as messy as them. (laughs) And, And as soon as we understand we are just as forgiven as them, we are... We are just as broken as them. Then we become we. It's not us and them. And I, I even remember that even in seminary, I mean, and I love my seminary professors, but I still heard it there, and I just was. I mean, I would cringe in class, going, "No, <laughs> we have to see ourselves as broken, fallen human beings in need of grace." Now, granted, like I said, I'm a saint. That's because of Jesus, mm-hmm. and I have, and I have to say that. It's because of Jesus, knowing that I'm just as rebellious without Jesus. That's that's really good point. That's really good. I'm glad you are thinking that. Yeah, and I did get to look at his notes, and I'm like, yeah. Rebellious, rebellious, rebellious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes?
2: So the one I'm struggling with is where it says, you say, the coming of the king meant freedom from sickness and pain. Mm-hmm. So obviously my <laughs> human mind is mm-hmm. thinking, well, that doesn't seem, because I know plenty of Christians who get mm-hmm. sick mm-hmm. and suffer lots of pain and things like that. So yes. Can you explain yeah. that
1: one a bit more? Sure, absolutely. So if we look at it in terms of New Testament and what the Jewish people were waiting for, one of the markers of the Messiah was one who would bring healing. And he certainly did that in the New Testament. And he certainly does that today. The other thing, though, that Jesus did with his life and his crucifixion showed that even those who would be considered cursed are still blessed by God. So hung on a tree, anyone hung on a tree in Old Testament was considered cursed. Anyone who was sick was also considered cursed by God, which is why if you look at Job, the whole idea of the story of Job was, well, you lost your kids you now are sick, God is against you. And the whole point of Job's life and the point of Jesus' life was to show that regardless of whether or not you're sick or well, God loves you. And so that had more to do with the, including that here in this specific portion, is that that's what was a marker of the Messiah and what the Jews would be looking for to understand, oh, this is our king. And so they missed it, because they were looking for something else. The healings, oh yeah, those were really fun. The miracles of food, that was really cool. But if you're willing to die, you're not really the king. And it's like, no, this is one of the markers and you missed it. So yeah, I totally understand there are wonderful Christians who die of cancer and all kinds of other things. But I also believe that God still does heal just depends on the story he's writing with our life and some of our stories are how we still walk with God in spite of our brokenness and our sickness and for some of us it's the miracle that's needed of healing in order for people to look at our lives and see a different part of God's story
0: yeah I I actually liked your word choice of like freedom from sickness and pain instead of like healing from sickness (laughs) and pain because that's what I've seen like pastorally is like you know how Jesus can offer you um, almost a detachment from your sufferings to receive peace and freedom from Mm -hmm. your pain being your master Mm -hmm. you know and I think about that paralyzed man who was dropped you know and jesus says your sins are forgiven mm-hmm. first before he heals him of mm-hmm. the legs mm-hmm. and i think yeah. he knew he needed the spiritual mm-hmm. intervention <laughs> the physical intervention mm-hmm. but I, I liked i liked this line it was interesting how i re- i received it versus how uh, you know like uh, just how that word mm-hmm. can, can mean like yeah freedom or healing and mm-hmm.
1: yeah no, and I totally appreciate it. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I don't want that to be mistaken. And, right. yet, and yet, I totally I get what you're saying because I feel like there are people that I know in our community that are in pain every day. Yeah. And yet, happiest, praising God, praying for people, willing to do help in any way. And you would never know what they were going through physically, emotionally, mental health issues, whatever. That's not to say that God can't heal them, but sometimes it is, if I'm not healed, do I still love God? Do I still worship him? And that's some people's story. That's not everyone's story. I tell people all the time, you keep praying for healing. If that's what you want from God, keep praying for it. Keep asking. That's what he tells us to do. But also the realization of the only true healing not in this place I mean I believe that at the end of the day is that even if I'm healed I'm still going to die <laughs> so because it's appointed for each person to die and after that we're at the feet of Jesus for judgment mm. either way mm. so I, I mean yeah I would love to be without pain I know there are lots of friends of mine who would love to be without mental illnesses that they have they're probably not going to get that on this side of heaven i'd love that for them yeah
3: yes so on the whole topic of like inclusion and like welcoming sinners to like the table and everything you mm-hmm. know like back then it was like to eat with like sinners and like the people that you say was was huge like cultural like impact you know it's like mm-hmm. a big like no no right mm-hmm. whereas like today Things have become a little bit more saturated in the sense of like you know it's not as big as like a cultural thing to like reach out to the homeless or like undesirable people Mm -hmm. right and then you have uh not only in the sense of like us uh putting up walls and like excluding ourselves but how society has turned its back on like undesirable undesirable people Mm -hmm. and them putting also putting up walls against like the people of society right so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that division Mm -hmm. so it's like kind of my question is like uh, like how's that shift or how is this like double barrier wall like it's like how is that broken down Mm -hmm. between like you know us and them Mm -hmm. and like how like the saturation of like cultural uh, differences or like or societal differences it's like the saturation of it makes it not as impactful or not as meaningful mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. it was in Jesus's time.
1: Mm-hmm. Now I hear you. I think, and so correct me if I start answering the wrong question, but I think that <coughs> we don't have like some of the same laws around food or around sinners or you know, right, like that. Like, sometimes we don't even know what's going on in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. So I will sit down and eat with him, I don't know, but somebody may walk past and see and they're like, I can't believe she's sitting with him, I don't why would? And I think the best thing to adopt is Jesus's attitude, which is be above it. It's like, I'm gonna eat with this person because I choose to. What you think about it, I really don't care. As long as I'm not visibly doing anything wrong, I think I think you rise above it I don't think you let other people's definition of you with that person define whether or not you'll be with them and like Jesus hung out like standing with not only a woman but a Samaritan woman outside a city by himself not the smartest move for a Jewish man but he's like I don't care I know what I'm doing and I think that's more the attitude to adopt is if you're there for the right reason with the right motives, then be there. I think society's going to do what they do, whether it's Christians or it's those outside. People are going to judge. And then we also have to go back to Scripture with that. Don't judge. Because, I mean, and what I mean by that is judging intent. I think we can judge behavior against the Word of God, always. But if you're trying to judge my intent by what you think you see me doing, then you're wrong. And I think that's, that's what's important to understand. As long as you know within yourself you're doing everything right and you're following the law of God and you're with this person because, like, what, there's a drunk person and I'm like, okay, they need help getting sobered up and I can put them into an Uber, but I may have to sit with them while they eat. Guess what? I'm going to sit with that person may not look very good to somebody walking by, but they don't know the whole story. Why should I worry about that? Does that make sense? Is that a little clearer? Mm -hmm. And I think there's, I mean, I think in the church, there are different undesirables that people may not want you to be around. Mm. And I would say love complicates things. And when God calls you to be with someone, to to be that person's friend, to walk alongside them in their brokenness, then you do it. Love is complicated. And I think that people don't always understand why you're doing something and that's okay. And hopefully they have enough guts to come and ask you instead of just assuming and spreading gossip. (laughs) That would be my hope. Remember, if you're talking, you're learning. Yes.
0: I, I'll go <laughs> another one. Do you think that the the 400 years that intertestamental period, mm-hmm. you know, I like the words you used of like character development or the development of Israel's uh, longing mm-hmm. and their <laughs> the waiting is the happening. I like I like that. That was really really good. Um, but do you al- do you also think that the four what? so the 400 years in that way of the waiting is the happening and the character development is like this uh, almost like uh, blessing is probably too strong of a word but some kind of like gift to the people of Israel they didn't know they were they were receiving but it seems like they were spiraling into more and more rebellion during that time too <laughs> so like with the fer- development of the Pharisees and the Aseans and all these different groups did, do you also see the 400 years also as punishment from God or is it is it a mixture of blessing and
1: curse you know it's funny because I had um, looked at this in a couple of ways I think okay so as a parent I'm going to use this sometimes my child gets the silent treatment so that she takes the time to think about what she did and there's also the, the time to think about who I am because we can treat God thinking of parents you know he's like our father we can treat God as if he's not a blesser as if what he does in our life is somehow really difficult and like just too much and that's how the Israelites were acting this what you're asking of us is just too much and he's like no I'm asking you to love me back I love you (laughs) like it's not that hard but that love requires some parameters. Mm. And so I think it's two things, if I look at it from a parent's perspective. Silence. Think about who I am. Do you really not get who I am? And then think about how you're acting. Really? Is that how you want to act towards me? <laughs> and so I think it's yeah. both. And then I think in that creates the desire for, okay, wait, but I, I do want to be back with you, God. And I think that's where jesus shows up is in that space of oh finally (laughs) i really i really want that relationship back and i think it's i don't know if i would call it punishment but i think it's definitely like go sit and think about what you were doing you know
2: yeah how would you describe the period we're in now Mm because i mean we're
1: waiting Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah that's so a really good question.
2: You know, we're going through character development. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I agree as a parent, you know, the silent treatment is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, you know, it's, I know it's not quite the same. <coughs> we, we do have Jesus to draw on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we are in a period of waiting. Absolutely. And it's you know, a lot longer than 400 years. So <laughs> how would you define this period, then? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I think it's it's interesting because... One of the things, okay, I'm going to reference this and I'm going to answer your question. So on page 58, it had this really cool statement Um, on the bottom. It says, as the biblical story resumes in Exodus, 400 years after Abraham. And I thought about that. Mm. I was like, 400 years after Abraham. So there's this promise made and there's all this waiting. And then stuff starts to happen. And I think about that with the intertestamental. It's like here's a promise made 400 years and there's all this waiting. For us though I think like scripture says we're waiting because God is very patient, very loving. And he doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. But I think our waiting is a little bit different. I don't think it's necessarily a silent treatment. I think it is I've given this really good gift. And there's a lot of people who need to know about it. And the momentary, yes. and I, I don't call it light, although Paul did. And I'm sure, you know, he lived longer than I have. But our light and momentary displeasure <laughs> with life, he's like, but you still have Jesus. So go share Jesus. Maybe that'll help you with your momentary troubles. But other people need to hear about Jesus. And so I think that's why we're waiting so long for this coming now. So then to add
2: to that, and maybe you'll address this next week, then what is the real purpose
1: of him coming again? Mm-hmm. I will address that This
2: oh, yeah. <laughs> It's like, well, we already have it.
1: Yeah, we already have him, but we don't have the, so the Prince of Peace, yeah, I, ha- I, have, I have peace. I think we each have peace in our own way. But there is a setup of peace that's coming for the whole world because the world does not have peace. Individually we do, individually we can share that with people. Just like, you know, God wanted the Israelites to share. People had the benefits of those who were connected to Israel. There are people who are connected to us that have the benefits of peace. They have the ability to be prayed for by us to all those sorts of things. So they have the connection to it. But in the grand scheme of things, there's not peace. In the grand scheme of things, yes, God is still God. He's on the throne. He is the ruler of all things, because if it were let loose, if we weren't here, mm-hmm. this would be really bad. And, we, and this is bad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the other part, of it, to answer your question, is part of the reason we are still here <laughs> is because the remnant keeps the crazy at bay. <laughs> And I don't think that people who don't believe in Jesus would thank us for that, because they don't realize how bad it could be if if God's people weren't here. Yeah. So God has His thing that He's doing, waiting, being patient, waiting for people to come to Him. But there's also, as long as there are Christians, the full onslaught of crazy is at bay. That. Day of the Lord thing that's in Isaiah and Daniel and a few other places. Yeah. It doesn't fully show up while his kids are still